The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Well, we are today uh, in Revelation chapter 1, beginning at verse 9 today. So if you have your Bibles, and I trust that you do, you'll go ahead and open up to the last book of the Bible. And we're going to read verses 9 through 20 this morning. Doesn't mean we'll get through all of that, but we'll read it just the same. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one, like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades." Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Well, we have for the past several weeks been studying this book of Revelation, and we have been dealing with a lot of introductory matters. We've been dealing with the circumstances under which this book was written. We talked about the type of literature that this book is. It's a combination really of three things. It is a letter, it is a prophecy, and it is a unique form of literature known as an apocalypse. We've also talked about the authorship of the book. We said that this was written by John the Apostle, one of the sons of Zebedee. But today we come to the first of the visions, which for the most part form the bulk of this mysterious and yet very important book. Uh, this is the part that you've all been waiting for, uh, the mysterious part. And it raises the question, how are we to understand not only this vision in the book of Revelation, but all of the visions that, as I said, form the heart of this book? Well, this gives us an opportunity, I think, to talk a little bit about the subject of biblical interpretation. 
Uh, the technical term for this is exegesis. Um, that is the, the unpacking of Scripture. Um, another way, another technical term is hermeneutics. That is the art of interpretation. Uh, how are we really to approach the Bible? How are we to approach a book like the book of Revelation? Well, let me just say that normally the way you approach any passage of the Bible is at face value. That is to say that if you approach a passage of the Bible, particularly from the Gospels or from the book of Acts, you are meant to take it as the literal truth. Um, what you are being given there is an account. In fact, you are to take all the passages of the Bible in a literal sense unless there is a compelling reason for us not to do so. All right? So as we approach the Bible, we should take it at its face value unless there is a compelling reason for us to interpret it or understand it in some other way. I pointed out to you in the past that I am convinced that this is the problem that for the most part plagues the church today. And when I say plagues the church today, I really mean plagues the Anglican communion today and many of the Protestant churches today. I've said to you before, the real issue is not what people would have you believe. The real issue today that is dividing the church is not a matter of human sexuality or the place of women in the life of the church or the ministry or any of those things, which is not to say that those are unimportant matters, but it's simply to say that they are really not the issue. They are merely symptoms of a much deeper issue, and the real issue is authority. What is the authority for the life of the church, not only on these matters, but really on all matters? Now, one of the reasons I say this is a problem for Anglicans and for Protestants in particular, and not for Roman Catholics, is Roman Catholics don't have an issue about authority. They know exactly where the authority resides. Those of you who are former Roman Catholics or recovering Catholics or however you want to describe yourselves, you know what I'm talking about. The authority resides where? in the magisterium of the church. There's a doctrine called papal infallibility. There's no question about where the authority resides. But from the time of the Reformation on, the understanding among Protestants has been that authority, our authority, is located where? In the Bible. This is one of the great battle cries of the Reformation, sola scriptura, scripture alone must be the authority for the life of the church. That has fallen on hard times. It really began in the early 18th century, it picked up steam in the late 19th century, and it took on a whole life of its own in the 20th century. And that's why I have said to you before, there are basically three views of scripture in the life of the church today. I'm going to keep repeating this so that you understand it because it's very important to diagnosing the problem in the world today. The first view of scripture is the classical view. It's the one that we give lip service to every single Sunday when we have a reading. We'll have a reading today. We had a reading at the early service from the book of Ruth. We had a reading from 2 Timothy, and we had a reading from the Gospel. Now, when we finish the reading from the book of Ruth and the reading from 2 Timothy, even though this was Paul's letter to Timothy, when we got to the end, we didn't say the word of Paul or the, the, the word of Ruth or whoever it was that wrote the book. We say what? The word of the Lord. That is to say that we believe that while the Bible has many writers, it has one author, God the Holy Spirit, who so superintended the process that he guided the writers in such a way that what they produced was, in fact, God's word to us. Theopanustos is the way Paul describes it in Greek. It means God breathed. Now, that's the classical view. 
But as I said, in the late 18th century, with the rise of higher criticism, many people began to argue that the Bible was not the Word of God. Of course, this was the age of reason, and it was an age of skepticism, and many people began to say, well, you can't believe that sort of thing anymore. We have to be rational about all of this. And as a result, people began to argue that the Bible was not the Word of God. It was simply the words of men about God. And its real value is to be found in its historical importance or its sociological value. That's the importance of the Bible. But it's not necessarily a divine word to us today. Now, that's the opposite end of the spectrum, of course, from the classical view. But there were some who were unhappy with both of those positions. On the one hand, they didn't want to say that the Bible was the word of God because that would come across as somewhat anti-intellectual in the minds of some. On the other hand, they were in the church and they didn't want to say that the Bible was simply the words of men about God because that would pretty much put them out of business. And so they thought what they would do is find a compromised view in which they would say that the Bible is the words of God and the words of men. And you have to discern which is which. And how do you do that? Well, you hand the Bible over to the scholars, and the scholars will tell you what the difference is. The only problem you discover is that the scholars don't agree. And it becomes a free-for-all. It becomes a smorgasbord. You inevitably pick those portions of the Scripture that you like the best, and you leave behind those parts that you don't. I've said to you before, I've got a sweet tooth. It's an affliction. In fact, I've got a whole mouth of sweet teeth, truth be known. And the reality is, if I go to a smorgasbord, I am in inevitably going to go, first and foremost, to the dessert section. Now, that may be the section that tastes the best, but it's not necessarily the one that has the most nutritional value. So you will find, if you treat the Bible as a smorgasbord, that that's what you will do. You will go to those parts that you find to be most attractive or palatable, but even though they are the more palatable parts, they are not necessarily the most nutritious parts. So really, the only tenable position for us is that the Bible is the Word of God. And that's why I say we need to take it seriously, and we need to take it at face value. Unless, as I said, there's a compelling reason for us to do otherwise. When you approach the Gospels, and the Gospels talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are meant, as I said, to take that at face value. When I was in seminary, I had a classmate who did not believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He would stand next to me. We had assigned seating, and I would sit next to him and stand next to him in chapel every day. And during morning prayer, we would stand up. We would say the Apostles' Creed, and he would say, I believe that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And I remember getting into a debate with him. I said, how in the world can you say that? Because you don't believe it. And his answer was, well, I don't believe it in the same way that you believe it. I don't believe that Jesus rose physically, bodily from the dead, but I believe that the spirit of Jesus rose in the heart of his disciples. Now, you see, that's what we oftentimes do. We want to spiritualize passages that were meant to be taken what? Literally. Absolutely. I mean, the gospel writers go to great lengths to make this point very clear. Thomas did what? He took his fingers and put them in the nail prints. He took his hand and put them in the Lord's side. Those passages are meant to be taken literally. And as I'm saying, you have to give the Bible the benefit of the doubt, and that's the way you should approach most passages, unless there's a compelling reason to do the opposite. What I'm going to suggest to you today, however, is 
But when it comes to the book of the Revelation of John, it's just the opposite. When you approach Revelation and a passage in Revelation, rather than approaching it literally or literalistically, this is a book where you should first approach it as symbol, unless there is a compelling reason for doing otherwise. So any other portion of the Bible, approach it literally, take it at face value, unless there's a compelling reason not to, but don't take it as symbol. But when you come to the book of Revelation, you need to approach this book as symbol, unless there's a compelling reason to take it literally. Now, somebody might say, well, now, wait a minute, That's, that sounds like you're selling out. That sounds like you're getting a little weak in the knees simply because this is a difficult book. Well, that's not the case at all. In fact, what I want to show you as we begin today is that John, the author of this book, makes it very clear that that is precisely how we are supposed to understand it. So take a look at chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God. I was in the spirit. That is a critical phrase. I was in the spirit. That is to say that I was engaged in worship. I was in a trance. We said that the book of Revelation is almost like a dream. The images that we encounter in the book of Revelation are the kind of images that we would encounter in a dream. Now hold fast there and turn back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. So John has this vision. At the beginning, it says, God, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's God's revelation to Jesus, Jesus' revelation to the angel, the angel's revelation to John. Revelation of things that must soon take place. The critical phrase here in verse 1 is the phrase, to make known. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. The Greek verb that is translated, to make known, or he made known, is the Greek word semino. Literally translated, it means to signify or to symbolize. All right? So that word is very important. It's right here at the beginning of Revelation. He's going to have this great vision of all the things that must soon take place, and what he sees signifies or symbolizes actual events. So what's being described in the book of Revelation are real events, but what is being used is symbolic language to do it, mythopoetic language, if you will, to borrow a phrase from the Old Testament. Real events, but being described in symbolic imagery. And that's the way that we should approach this book. So let's approach this first vision in that light. It's describing a real thing, but it is using symbolic language to signify things that are beyond our mind to grasp. A great example of this is later on in the book of Revelation. Heaven, uh, the heavenly kingdom is described as streets of gold and gates of pearl. How many of you ever heard that expression before? I, I preached at a, at a funeral yesterday, and one of the things that I pointed out is I said, 
You know, that, that's, that's the view that many people have of heaven. Well, if you've lived in the South Carolina low country, who wants to go there? <laughs> I mean, really, I mean, I, mean, I mean, streets of gold and gates of pearl do not seem all that attractive to me. I mean, that may be impressive if you go to Disney World or something like that, but you know, who wants to live in a place with streets of gold and gates of pearl? That's not particularly attractive when you've lived on the deep water. So what is John doing? What John is trying to do is describe the indescribable. The things that we count as precious, pearls and gold, these things are but commonplace in the heavenly kingdom. They're nothing compared to the glory that is revealed. You see, he's using symbolic language to describe things that are real but indescribable. And that's what he's going to do here in this vision beginning in verse 9. So it's a magnificent vision, but it begins in a rather mundane way. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patience and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. John tells us exactly where he was when this great vision came to him. He said he was on the island of Patmos. Now, some of you have actually been to the island of Patmos. We were there just a few months ago. It's a rocky, crescent-shaped uh, island about 37 to 40 miles southwest of the mainland of Asia. Um, it is about 16 square miles, so it's, it's not a big island. Furthermore, John says he was on this island. Why? Well, he gives us a number of reasons. They all mean the same thing, though. He says, first of all, he was a partner in the tribulation and the kingdom. And then he says he was there because of patient endurance that are in Christ Jesus. And he was there on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, he's on this rocky crescent-shaped isle out in the middle of the ocean on account of Jesus, on account of his kingdom. It's interesting. He describes himself as a partner in the tribulation. The Greek word for tribulation is an interesting word. is the Greek word philipsis. It literally means pressure. We talked about this before. He's there on the island of Patmos because he's under the pressure, the same pressure that the readers of this book are facing. He's there because he's being persecuted for the kingdom of God, persecuted for Jesus Christ. The Roman historian Tacitus describes the island of Patmos as a place of banishment where people were sent for blasphemy, namely blasphemy against the empire. Patmos was the ancient equivalent of Australia in the 18th century. <laughs> Van Diemen's land. You know, that's where people went in fact, I was talking to Bishop Barnett uh, last week. You know, he's from Australia. And I said, now, uh, you and Anita, I said, are your families, do they go back deep? You have to be careful about this because it was a penal colony. You know, I mean, I mean, what do you say? Your family go back? You know, our family goes back to the Mayflower. You know, that's, that's kind of a proud thing. But when, you know, when, when you're on a penal colony, you have to, you know, did your family go deep in the Australian history? And, and he said, well, Anita's family, no. Uh, her parents were Scottish. They were Scottish missionaries. I said, oh. I said, how about your family? He goes, oh, yes, my family goes way back. <laughs> I said, really? I said, well, well, tell me about that. 
It turns out that um, his great-great-great-grandfather was an Anglican clergyman in Northern Ireland in the 18th century. And they had problems in the 18th century in Ireland between the Irish and the English. And his great-great-great-grandfather got involved in the Troubles. And he was banished to Australia. And that's how the family got there. It was a place of banishment. Because he was speaking out, even though he's an Anglican clergyman, against the crown. Well, that's what Patmos was in the first century. It was a place where people were sent because they spoke out against Caesar. So John tells us this is where he was, and this is why he was there. Because he was out proclaiming that Jesus was Lord, and as you've heard me say many times before, to say that Jesus is Lord means that Caesar is not. Now sometimes that got you killed. In the case of the Apostle Paul, it got him martyred, got Peter martyred. In the case of John, it got him exiled. And he says, I was on the island of Patmos on account of the kingdom. And he tells us the day of the week. He says it was the Lord's day. Incidentally, this is the only place in all of Scripture where that expression is used, the Lord's day. Now, the expression is used in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord, which is meant to describe the day of judgment. But this expression, the Lord's day, was an early way of describing what? Sunday. Why was it called the Lord's Day? There's murmuring here. This, this is not a trick question. Think it through for a minute. Why is this called the Lord's Day? It's the day of the resurrection, of course. Now, this is very important. Because remember, most of these men were what? Jews. They had been raised as Jews. What is one of the Ten Commandments? Keep holy the Sabbath day. What was the Sabbath day? Saturday. Listen, this is a pet peeve of mine. I've got lots of them. I've got a whole catalog of them, but this is one of them. There are a lot of churches that have gone to having services on Saturday night. And the reason that they've gone to having services on Saturday night is so that everybody can be free to do what they want on Sunday morning. I am dead set against that. And I'm dead set against it because from the earliest days of the church, Sunday has been the day marked out as the day of the resurrection. I mean, it's one of the most, in my opinion, one of the most compelling proofs of Jesus' victory over sin and death. It would take something cataclysmic. It would take something on the level of somebody dying and coming back to life again to take Jews who were devout from worshiping on the Sabbath and violating the Ten Commandments to suddenly worshiping on the first day of the week. See, when we gather on Sunday, when we set aside this day, when we close our shops and we open our churches and we show up on Sunday, what we are doing is we are saying we are a people of the resurrection. Every other day of the week is, you know, what it is. But this is the Lord's day. This is the day that He won the victory, the victory that has set us free. This is our Sabbath. Don't neglect Sunday. It's the most important day of the week. It's not the end. You know, that's the way we treat it, isn't it? We treat Sunday as the end of the week. And the first day of the week is what? Monday. Because that's when we all have to go back to work or back to school or whatever it is. We say Monday. But really, when you were taught to learn the days of the week, the first day of the week is what? Sunday. This is the first 
day of the week, and it is the first of days for the Christian. That helps us to understand what John was doing. He tells us where he was, he tells us what day of the week it is, and he tells us what he was doing. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. What does that tell us? It tells us he was worshiping. John was engaged in the act of worship. Now, I want you to understand, as important as the Bible studies and the classes are, and they are important. In fact, I really believe that teaching is critical to the well-being and growth of a Christian congregation and for us as individuals. But, in terms of what we do as Christians, the most important thing we do is we worship. That's the most important thing we do. The church service is the most important thing that we do, whether it's morning prayer or whether it's the Holy Eucharist. It is the most important thing that we do. Now, most of the time when people come to church, the way they look at church is they think that the congregation is the audience and those guys up front are the entertainers. So you really hope that the preacher's on because he's there to entertain me. He's there to edify me. And if he's not on, then you walk out and you say, why was I here to begin with? Let me tell you something. When it comes to church, the congregation is not the audience. Do you know who the audience is? God is the audience. That's right. It's His day. It's His party. God is the audience. You and I are the actors. That's why we're liturgical. The word liturgy means, here's a little uh, sidebar for you if you're interested in this. Liturgy means the work of the people. That's what the word means. So as worshipers, you are engaged, you see, in bringing glory to God. He's the audience. You, you are the actors. And you are there for His pleasure to lift Him up. And that's what John said he was doing. What is interesting is you'll notice in Scripture, it's often the case that God speaks to His people while they're engaged in worship. If you look at Acts chapter 13, we're told that it was the church in Antioch engaged in worship to whom the Holy Spirit spoke and said, Set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I have called them. And we're told that the church laid hands on them and sent them off, and that was the beginning of Paul's missionary journeys. I always say that Acts chapter 13 is a turning point in the history of the church, but also a turning point in the history of the world. You and I are sitting here today as Gentile Christians because that church laid hands on Paul and Barnabas and sent them off to be messengers to the ends of the world. But it wasn't the church that came up with the idea. It was the Holy Spirit who spoke to that church while that church was engaged in worship. So worship is absolutely critical. And John tells us it was while he was there on this island, on the first day of the week, engaged in worship, that all of a sudden he had this vision. Look at verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. 
His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. What does John see? Well, the first thing he sees are seven candles. Now, to any Jew, that would have immediately brought up memories of the menorah. Now, the menorah today has how many candles? Anybody know? It is. It does depend upon which. But many menorahs today have nine. This developed with the tradition of Hanukkah. But in the Old Testament, in the temple precincts, there was a menorah, a seven-branch candlestick. And we said that seven is the symbol for perfection, fullness, completion here in the book of Revelation. So if you were a Jew and you hear that expression, seven candlesticks, what immediately comes to your mind is the menorah, the symbol for Israel. But in this particular instance, the candles are all separated. And John understands that to mean that they no longer represent Israel. Those seven candles represent the church. They represent these seven churches, but we talked about these seven churches last week. We said that these seven churches are representative of the church universal. So when he turns and he sees this vision and he sees the seven candlesticks, he understands that this is representative of the church. And sitting in the midst of them, in the midst of these candles which represent the church, is a figure. And he describes the figure as being one like a son of man. Now, what does that mean? Well, the book of Revelation, we said, is filled with allusions to another book, the Old Testament book of Daniel. And if you want to understand that expression, son of man, you have to go back to the book of Daniel. So keep your finger there in Revelation and go back toward the end of the Old Testament to the book of Daniel. And John's early readers would have understood this very well. And in Daniel chapter 7, he has this great vision. We'll begin at verse 9 in Daniel chapter 7. And as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. Does this sound familiar? His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand, thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. This is the day of the Lord. Not the Lord's day, but the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. And I looked Then, because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and his body destroyed and given over to be burned. Verse 13, And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, this is very important, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall never 
be destroyed. Now we have a similar image in chapter 10, where this scene of the Son of Man appears again. And unfortunately, I don't think we have the time to go into it today, but let's just go back here to Daniel chapter 7. Suffice it to say, in chapter 10, you have the same image. What I want you to notice about this image that Daniel has in chapter 7 is this powerful image of the Ancient of Days. Now, who's the Ancient of Days? This this is God. This is God Almighty. The first and the last, the one who always was, the eternal one. The thrones were placed, the Ancient of Days took his seat. But then we're told another figure appears coming in the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented to him. And what is he given? Well, he's giving dominion, glory, kingdoms, peoples, nations, languages, an everlasting dominion, a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor pass away. In other words, he is giving the things that belong to God things that belong to the ancient of days he is another one he is not the ancient of days but he is like a son of man and yet he receives all of the glory the honor the praise the worship that the ancient of days receives now that's remarkable in the old testament who's being described there in daniel's vision it's jesus christ it's the pre-incarnate christ so when you go back to revelation And he says, I heard a voice and I turned and I saw seven candlesticks representing the church. And in the midst of those seven candlesticks, there was one like the Son of Man. Who is he describing in this vision? (laughs) That's right. You see, you can put the pieces together again. This is a vision of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting to note that of all the titles that Jesus could have used for himself during the course of his earthly ministry, the one that he used more than any other. His preferred title for himself was the Son of Man. That was Jesus' way of saying to his Jewish audience, I am the one spoken of in Daniel. I am the one who is not the Ancient of Days, but I am equal with the Ancient of Days, and I receive all that he receives, dominion, glory, power, and majesty. They belong to me. So on the Lord's day, on the Isle of Patmos, while he's engaged in worship, what John receives is a vision of Jesus Christ. We said that this book is a revelation from Jesus, but it's a revelation about Jesus. Now, how is Jesus described here? I know I'm never going to get through all of this, but we're going to we're going to give it the try anyway. Go back now to Revelation. Who is Jesus? We said that there are symbols that are used here to describe Jesus and who he is. First thing he says is that this one who is like the Son of Man, sitting in the midst of the church, the seven candlesticks, is clothed in white with a golden sash. Now that may not sound too significant to us. But any Jew knew exactly what that was a description of. That was a description of the vestments worn by the priests in the Old Testament. So when Jesus is depicted as clothed in white with a golden sash, he is being depicted in a priestly capacity. Now what does a priest do? 
priest does a number of things. First of all, a priest intercedes on behalf of others. Second of all, a priest makes sacrifices, doesn't he? So what John is seeing in this vision is Jesus Christ is the great priest. The author of Hebrews said he's the great high priest. He is the one who makes sacrifice. Isn't that what Jesus did on the, on the cross for us? He made a sacrifice, an atonement for our sins. But he not only made the sacrifice, he became the sacrifice. And now, having been raised from the dead, vindicated, what does he do now? He sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and he does what? He makes intercession for you and me. Do you know that that's what Jesus Christ has been doing ever since he took his place at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty? He has been making intercession for you and for me. Now, I know some people want the rector to pray for him because you think I've got a toll-free line. And I'm happy to pray for you, but do you realize that you've got someone even greater than the clergy praying for you? You've got Jesus Christ, the Son of God, one like the Ancient of Days. And he lives to make intercession for you today. That's the first thing that John sees. When he sees that priestly attire, he knows exactly who this is, and he understands exactly what Jesus Christ is doing. He's the one who has made sacrifice. He was the atoning sacrifice, and he is the one who ever lives to make intercession for us. Second thing he notices is that he has hair like wool. Going back to that passage in Daniel chapter 7, when the Ancient of Days, when the thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his place, who was it that had hair like wool? The Ancient of Days. <laughs> it was God Almighty. Now, why does he have hair like wool? What color is wool? It's white. It simply means that he's old. He's everlasting. He's the ancient of days. He has no beginning. And Jesus is depicted in the same way. As what? God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. There's a reason why we say the things that we do every Sunday. This is where this comes from, you see. So Jesus is depicted as a priest who makes intercession for us, who sacrifices himself for us and for our sins, but he is the one who was slain before the foundations of the earth. He's the ancient of days. He is equal with God Almighty himself. He has eyes like flame. That's a judicial image in the Old Testament. It means that he is all-seeing. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. Have you ever heard those words before? We say them every Sunday. They're part of the colic for purity. That's the idea here. He is the one who sees the secrets of men's hearts. Now, for some of you, that's terrifying. Let's just be honest. But my friends, it's meant to be a comfort because he sees you with all of your faults, all of your blemishes, every impure thought and idea you've ever had, and he loves you in spite of it and offers himself for you, and having died has been raised to make intercession for you. That is the picture. He has feet like glowing bronze. What does that mean? Well, it's a picture of moral purity, yes, but it's more than moral purity. It is the idea that he is the one whose judgment, whose justice is irresistible. 
Now, I'm almost hesitant to close on this note because I'm in South Carolina. It's a reference to judgment. It comes again in Revelation chapter 14. We have a picture of this in a very famous song. It was a poem written by Julia Ward Howe. It was put to music and it became known as the Battle Hymn of the Republic. This is the reason why I'm hesitant to use it. <laughs> but there's a line in that that is lifted right from this book of Revelation. And he is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. That's the idea. Feet of burnished bronze. His justice, his judgment is irresistible. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He had a voice like a roar of many waters. In Ezekiel chapter 43, this is how the prophet Ezekiel describes the voice of God Almighty. So this is God's voice that he hears. He holds seven stars in his right hand. In the book of Ezekiel, another one of these prophetic books, the seven represent the wise among the people. But John understands these seven stars to be what? The idea that Jesus is holding in his hands the church. Through many toils and snares we have already come. That's the idea that even in the midst of tribulation, these were people that were facing all kinds of difficulty for the sake of the kingdom. John himself was in exile there on that island, and yet he sees Jesus holding what? Holding the church in the palm of his hand. One who is like the ancient of days, who sacrificed himself and makes intercession for us. He holds all things in his hands. From his mouth proceeds a what? A two-edged sword. This, of course, is a symbol of God's word. That's how it's described in Hebrews chapter 4, a two-edged sword dividing marrow from bone. In Ephesians, Paul says, take up the full armor of God and finally take up what? The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, with which you can strike back at the enemy. So from his mouth comes the word of truth. It is the word of God. It is theopanustos, God-breathed. It is authoritative. And his face shines like the sun. I'm sure John understood what that meant. He had seen something very similar to this. On one occasion, Jesus had taken John, along with a number of other disciples, up to a high mountain where they saw Jesus during the course of his ministry, what? Transfigured before their eyes. His garments became whiter than any fuller on earth could bleach them. Peter was so in awe of what he saw, he said, let us build three booths. And toward the end of his life, when Peter himself was facing the prospect of martyrdom, it's interesting to note, he harked back to that moment on the mountains. He said, we saw him in his glory. Well, what John said was Jesus was in his transfigured glory. But it wasn't momentary like up there on the mountain. It was Jesus shining in resplendent glory for all time. And what's his response when he sees Jesus? <laughs> when he sees Jesus, the priest the ancient of days, the one who is going to bring judgment and justice to the earth, the one who has sacrificed himself and now lives to make intercession for us. What does he do when he sees Jesus Christ, the one who holds the church and time and history in his hands? What does he do? He falls down on his face as though dead. 
Keep your finger there in Revelation and turn back to Isaiah. And I want to read you a passage from Isaiah because Brian makes a reference to this in his sermon, incidentally, today. But this is always the case when people see the Lord. When they see the Lord as He really is. How does the old Christmas carol put it? Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Veil the incarnate deity. Well, in Isaiah chapter 6, he has a similar vision. And look at how it goes. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, incidentally, this is the passage that is assigned to be read at all ordination services. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, when you see God for who He really is, in all of His majesty, in all of His glory, in all of His justice, in all of His mercy, and you see yourself as you really are, you cannot but help cry out like Isaiah did, Woe is me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And he fell as John fell in the presence of God Almighty, the Ancient of Days, the Jesus Christ, who is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. He fell on his face as though dead. Because he was nothing in the presence of God. But what does God do to Isaiah? Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin is atoned for. And when John fell on his face before Jesus Christ, there in the midst of those seven candlesticks, what did the Lord do? The Lord took him and raised him up. See, if you're a Christian, that's what God has done. That's who Jesus Christ is. See, the problem is when we think of Jesus Christ, we have a very pedestrian view of Jesus Christ, don't we? Particularly at Christmas, we have this image of a a nice little baby. But that baby, whose tiny little hands reached out for a mother's loving touch in that cold Palestinian night, was the same one who created the stars and the moon and knit you together in your mother's womb and took on flesh that he might offer himself as the atoning sacrifice, as the great high priest. And having died for your sins made you who were unclean clean, that you might forever dwell with him in glory, that one day, like him, you may shine like the sun in all its glory. That's what John saw. God grant that as we go over to church today, we might catch just a glimpse 
of what John saw, Jesus Christ in all his majesty. Let us pray. Father, ancient of days, we give you thanks and praise for this great revelation that was given to John on the Lord's day. A man in exile for the sake of the gospel and for the kingdom of God. Grant that we may be a people who are willing to suffer all things for the sake of your kingdom. That we, as we worship you in spirit and in truth, might, like John, catch just a glimpse of the majesty of Jesus Christ. And having fallen on our faces though dead, find ourselves raised up with him in glory. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.